I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Ethan Gao. Ethan has owned a number of rental properties. Uh, he's made over 300 private loans secured by real estate and he's invested in single family fix and flip as well as multifamily. Um, Ethan's primary role is as a loan guarantor and key principal and gap funder. Uh, we're going to get into what all of that means and, and sort of some definitions. But first, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show today, Ethan. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I, this this will be, uh, I think this will be actually a really unique episode. Um, some of the stuff we'll talk about, I, I don't, uh, not that I, not that there aren't other people doing what you're doing, but it's, it's not, maybe not out there. It's not uh, as common knowledge. Um this so, is like one of those things in Fight Club. Uh, right. A lot of people don't talk about Fight Club. Right, exactly. But I'll talk about it. I don't really give a shit. Yeah, good, perfect, perfect. Yeah, I, I think it's important to talk about because it, it's you know no, knowing what's available. But so anyway, before we get before we get into that, we're like talking about it like it like it is Fight Club. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Let listeners know your story, and then we'll we'll dive in on some of this. Absolutely. So I'm an entrepreneur that's not really an entrepreneur. That's probably the best way of thinking about me. Uh, I'm a pure, my wife and I are pure Ivy League corporate people, Wall Street people that ended up in real estate later. So uh, I went to Cornell, then Columbia Law School. Uh, I was super young. I went to college when I was 16. I met my wife the first day of class at college. And then one day she said, uh, I want to be an investment banker. And I said, what the hell is an investment banker? <laughs> And she said, I don't know, but these two people just came back to campus and they said they make a ton of money and they enjoyed their internship. And I said, that logic, I uh, can't, can't pick at that logic. Sounds great. So uh, my wife got a job at JP Morgan in investment banking. And she told me, well, you know, because I want to do that, you need to go to law school in New York City. And I said, sounds great. So that's why I went to Columbia Law School. Uh, I was probably the youngest kid in my class. I was 19 at the time. So I graduated from college in three years. And so um, while I was going to law school, my wife did investment banking. And investment banking is basically uh, working 100 hours a week all the time, uh, more or less. Uh, you get to do some cool stuff, but it's about 90% terrible uh, and then 10% maybe cool. After that, she got a job at a big private equity firm. And then after that, she got an MBA from Harvard. So I ended up moving with her to Boston for two years uh, after I'd worked for a couple of years uh, at a law firm. So I just did kind of Wall Street transactions. We were uh, the big law firms that I worked at represented private equity firms primarily and big banks. And we did a lot of mergers and acquisitions type of stuff. Uh, so after she graduated from uh, business school at Harvard, moved back to New York City and uh, she worked at Goldman Sachs uh, in their private equity group. So their private equity group had money from the partners at Goldman Sachs. They were basically investing the partners money. And um, at that point, uh, it was 2010, uh, it just wasn't a great economy or, or situation. And that's when I decided uh, we needed to make a career change. So I ended up getting an uh, in-house legal job at a financial institution in Hong Kong. 
because I speak uh, Chinese basically. And uh, it was just through a personal connection. So we lived in Hong Kong for two years. Then we had our first child in Hong Kong and we decided we needed to move back to the US, but we didn't want to live in New York or Boston, which is where we lived as adults. So I did some research and I concluded that I needed to move to either Dallas or Houston. Um, you know, the, the incomes were relatively high in those places uh, with the jobs I was looking for. The cost of living was relatively low, no state income tax, uh, good weather. So I basically just ended up getting a job in Houston because I had a connection that, that I'd worked with a long time ago. And he hired me over a video call in 2013. I'd never been to Houston before I got off the plane in April of 2013. It was super hot. So I knew I was in the right place. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I actually preferred to go to Dallas. And I explained to the guy why. And he said, uh, Ethan, that's got to be the stupidest reason I've ever heard. And my reason was because I watched the Cowboys uh, growing up in the 90s. And he says, yeah, that, that, that's retarded. Uh, oil's at $100 a barrel, just moved to Houston, dude. I said, can't, can't argue with that logic either. So yeah. um, I was in, uh, so I was, I worked at a big law firm in Houston. We did a lot of uh, oil and gas, um, oil and gas related uh, work, uh, some M&A, a lot of IPOs for uh, master limited partnerships. And so uh, at that point, um, my wife uh, decided she didn't want to work uh, outside the home anymore. She wanted to take care of our kids. We only had one at the time. So I told her, okay, well, we better we better have more than one kid to make it really worthwhile. And so we ended up having five. Uh, so she, she really exceeded expectations on that. I, I didn't quite think we were going to go this far, but, but we did. Uh, so we have four daughters and a son. And so the fact pattern is basically, you know, my wife would be at home taking care of the kids. And uh, I would have crazy hours. I was still making a really good income at a pretty good law firm. Uh, and, and to be fair to that firm, it was a little bit easier to work there than it was in New York and to a lesser extent, Boston. Uh, being at a big firm in Texas was just marginally better than being at a big firm in New York in terms of hours and stuff. But it was so, still a lot of work. They paid us a lot of money. So they expected us to work around the clock when there was work. So I just remembered I would always Google stupid stuff like, how do I not have to work here at this job? That, that was basically the, you know, me late at night working on something boring or working on something intense. And so um, two things came up to me through those Google searches. One was franchises and one was real estate. What attracted me to about franchises is not because I'm a real entrepreneur, but it just seemed like I could make some passive income doing relatively little. And so when I did a bunch of research into them and looked at a bunch of franchise disclosure documents and did all these calls with franchise finders, my conclusion became uh, most of these franchises are uh, are essentially buying a terrible job. So I thought to myself, well, I already have one of those that I don't have to buy. In fact, they pay me like 300K to do this job. Why would I go buy a terrible job? That sounds uh, That doesn't sound right. So I did not go down franchises much further. What attracted me to real estate was a lot of gurus and experts in real estate who are selling courses. They presented themselves as the opposite of myself. So they presented themselves as people that uh, did not have a great education. Uh, either it's because they didn't grow up in the right circumstances or just flat out they were never good students. So that is the opposite of me. Uh, and then they also presented themselves as having no money when they started, which was 
also the opposite of me. Uh, my wife and I had saved millions of dollars just from our jobs um, working. So I was like, man, so if these guys that tell me that they were terrible at school and didn't even have any money have now achieved this level of success, that sounds really amazing. I would like to go on a similar journey and I don't even have to have the same level of success that they had. I just need like a portion of their success and I'd be happy. So that's when I started uh, researching real estate quite a lot more. And specifically what I determined was that as somebody with a legal background, uh, a lot of cash and um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, my best role was to be a private lender. So I started lending millions of dollars to people fixing and flipping houses in the Houston area. I've done, I don't even know how many, 300 to 400 of those loans over the past eight years. And I mean, they're high interest rate loans. So, you know, when when you when you do that and everybody pays you back on time uh, with a zero credit loss, uh, you're able to make some decent money along the way. So that's what permitted me to quit my corporate job. I never really particularly wanted to quit my corporate job, um, but just the confluence of events with, you know, having so many children, the job being very difficult to get promoted within and just being a pretty difficult job in general, plus the, you know, success I had in real estate just made it so that it made sense for me to go out on my own. So even to this day, I'm not a pure play entrepreneur. I still practice law. So I still have a couple of repeat clients that I do a lot of legal work for, and then a rotating stable of less repeat clients and then random referrals that I get. And, you know, if if the work makes sense and it's something that I do, uh, I still take those clients on and I still do the work. Uh, in addition to that, I became a financial advisor. So the guy that sold me my first life insurance policy uh, almost 10 years ago, he hired me onto his team. So we're a registered investment advisor. And uh, we, we, you know, people on my team have all the various licenses. We do comprehensive financial planning, tax strategies, investments, and life and disability insurance for clients. So I still actively do that job as well, in addition to all of my real estate activities. So sorry, that was a super long uh, introduction. So let, let me know if there's that's anything perfect. in particular in no, there that you want to delve into more. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, I, that's that's kind of an amazing story. And and I mean, I think one of the things that struck me is is everything along the way, Ethan, seems very calculated, right? You, you, th you think through, you thought through each step along the way, I'm going to do this for this reason. I'm going to move, move to Houston or Texas for this reason, all of that stuff. And it, and I think it's it's uh, <laughs> you talked about how some of these gurus are the opposite of what you know what you were at that point you decided to get into real estate, and it's it's true. There's a lot of talk out there in the real estate world, especially by these you know people selling courses and stuff. And it's like you, you don't need to have any money. You don't have to you know you don't have to have any education. You don't. But but the the reality is is like those things are very helpful and allow you to be successful in the space. It's not that you can't do it otherwise, but I think some of that is it's misleading uh, sometimes what, what it takes to get into real estate. But I want to, I want to talk about and sort of define some of the, the specifics that you do um, with being a key principal, um, a loan guarantor and a gap lender. And we'll start, you know, just, because I think just so the the listener know what we're talking about, but basically, you know, can you describe what a key principle is when you're playing that role in a in a, uh, a I assume in a syndication? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for the question. So, um, 
a few years ago. So I, so I had done, uh, you know, as far as my story, I'd done all these single family deals. Uh, one, one day a mutual friend, uh, just had lunch with me or breakfast with me and just said, Hey dude, have you ever thought about being a key principal or a loan guarantor? You know, Ethan, you keep such a high percentage of your net worth liquid and you have such a high net worth. Have you ever thought about doing that? And I said, Jordan, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me like I'm really stupid? And he said, okay, fine. Here's an example. So let's say uh, we're buying a, let's say Jason and Ethan are buying a $15 million apartment building. Let's say Jason and Ethan are borrowing $10 million from the bank and Jason and Ethan have to raise $5 million uh, for the deal, you know, from their friends, family, investor base, whatever. So as one of the conditions of being approved for that $10 million loan, Jason and Ethan, as the lead sponsors, are required to sign as loan guarantors or key principals, in the case of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, onto the loan. Now, loans are typically non-recourse loans. What that means is um, Jason and Ethan don't have to pay off the whole loan if there's a problem unless they've committed a bad act or a, or some sort of non-compliance that triggers the default. If, if if the market just shifted and interest rates just went really high and Jason and Ethan are upside down, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily on the hook to pay off the deficiency in the loan. It just means they are if the bank feels like, you know, they've committed some sort of bad act or they've just had some sort of noncompliance, like they couldn't deliver their financial statements or they couldn't renew their insurance. Relatively easy stuff where we should never be in a situation where we can't comply. Now we can't we can't do anything about interest rates going up or the value of the property plummeting because of said interest rate increase. Uh, but at least we can control ourselves and not be not compliant and not be, you know, commit bad acts. So um, anyway, so the condition of the loan is that Jason and Ethan have to have combined net worth of $10 million. So if Jason and Ethan only have a net worth of eight. They need to find a, another guy to bring onto the team to fill that gap so they get approved to the loan. Um, and then one of the ways that the bank does a compliance check is they say, well, you know, we don't really know what these personal financial statements mean. You could have just made up what these things are worth. It's too hard to determine. So why don't we put an objective test? Uh, Jason and Ethan, show us uh, 10% of the loan amount liquid. So show us $1 million. So 10% of that $10 million loan. Show us $1 million liquid somewhere. So that could be uh, life insurance policies, which is what I have. Uh, it could be a brokerage account, which is what I have. It could be cash in the bank, which I rarely have, um, or, or stuff like that, right? Like something liquid. So if Jason and Ethan have 11 million net worth, but they only have 500K liquid, they have to find another guy or another girl that has 500K liquid. And then sometimes Jason and Ethan might actually meet both requirements. So let's say Jason and Ethan have 1.1 million of cash uh, or, or life insurance, and then 11 million of net worth. So theoretically, uh, we qualify. However, let's say it's like 2020 or 2021 when it was a seller's market and the seller says if you want this 15 million dollar deal you're gonna need to put 500k cash down earnest money hard day one so now that means jason and ethan either have to go find a, a partner that'll put up the earnest money or they're gonna have to remove 500k from their liquidity into the earnest money deposit which now means jason and ethan's liquidity is 600,000, not 1.1, and now we no longer qualify. 
So now this is another fact pattern where we need to bring on another guy. So Ethan Gao's job in this life is to be that other guy. So I will come in and I'll fill out your um, liquidity needs. I'll fill out your um, uh, net worth needs. And at this point, I've done this enough. Uh, and I've I've got multifaceted experience in commercial. So I've done multifamily. I've done industrial. I've done retail. I've done office. And I've done self-storage. So I can get brought in... Um, to fill out any of those types of deals. So there could be situations where successful multifamily syndicators are trying to do self-storage or office for some reason. And the lender says, this is great. You guys meet the net worth and the liquidity requirements. However, you don't meet the experience requirements. You've never done this before. That's when you can also call Ethan Gow and say, hey, Ethan, I heard you did some storage before. Let's see if that would qualify for this lender. And I say, oh, yeah, I did. You know, here are the couple of storage storages I did. You know, let me know. So the experience component can also be um, a factor that helps. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because certainly the, you know, sort of the, the numbers as far as the money goes with liquidity and net worth is is important, but the the experience is is equally important in terms of satisfying these lender requirements. And so, that's a I think not a very often mentioned role when people you know people go through the roles of a syndicator and they're like oh acquisitions, underwriting, capital raising, asset management. But unless you've been doing it for a long time, you probably or maybe you're starting with much smaller deals, you're probably not going to necessarily qualify as the loan guarantor on a lot of your initial deals. I think that's that's actually very common. I and mean, we mentioned that people will say, hey, you can get into this industry without having money. Someone has to have money, right? And so as as Ethan's saying, that that's that's your job. You're the the to be the guy with the money in those deals. Um, and having done so many, that's that's actually fantastic to know that you know that that also qualifies as experience. Um, <clears throat> so for that, and just so so people understand my my assumption, I, I'm sure everybody structures it differently. But you're gonna get a percentage of that general partnership ownership in the property for being the the loan guarantor, correct? That's right. That's the usual. Uh, I have had situations where the team just preferred to pay me a guarantor fee cash. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with that, depending on the amount of cash and what it represents, you know, as a percentage of the loan or as a percentage of the deal um, that that could be acceptable. I've done deals where it's all equity, uh, no cash fee. And I've actually done it as a combination of both. Some deals have a guarantor fee that they charge to the syndication. So I get the benefit of that, plus I get a percentage of the deal as a general partner. And by being and signing on the loan, I I I become a general partner um, in the deal. Otherwise, you know, the lender might say, "Oh yeah, we don't really want mercenaries for hire. Um, if they're not even a part of your general partnership team, this doesn't really make a ton of sense." So sometimes the lenders will have specific requirements. They're like, oh, well, you know, Ethan has to be a member of this team. He ha you know, he has to have at least percentage ownership worth X. And, uh, you know, he needs to invest at least, at least Y dollars into the deal or something like that. Right. Yeah. And 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 some of them, um, as you said, they'll, they'll require the general partnership as a whole 
to have a certain amount of cash in the deal itself. So it might be, you know, on the on the limited partner side. So it might be, I'd imagine that's another role that you might potentially play there or, or at least contributing to that portion of it. So if the, um, sometimes the lenders will say that the GP team has to put in 10% of the overall equity or something like that. So that's um, another, you know, requirement or need that has to be filled. Yeah, it, it is. And and that's a really good uh, dovetailing into the next point of being a gap funder. So um, the being a gap funder for me, you know, I call it a gal gap loan under, uh, I call it a gal gap loan uh, in, in, in respect to myself, not because I'm arrogant, but just because I hear people use gap loans and it means a variety of different things. So I'm going to define a gal gap loan because that's what I do and that's what I want to do. And I don't want to do the other types of gap loans that exist. So what I consider a gal gap loan is when somebody has a short-term need for capital. And 90% of the time, the repayment strategy is repayment from post-closing fundraising. So let me give you the first deal that I did this way. So somebody was buying a 25 million apartment building in Phoenix. They were borrowing 15 million from Freddie Mac. So Freddie Mac generally doesn't give you high leverage. So that meant she had to raise $10 million of limited partnerships. Uh, she raised 8 million. Uh, she was introduced to me by a mutual friend. And then I realized we had more mutual friends. And basically in that situation, uh, if she did not close, if she couldn't find this $2 million and she didn't close on time, uh, she couldn't get an extension. The seller had a 1031 fact pattern, so he was unable to give an extension. Uh, if she didn't close with my money or somebody else's money, here's what would have happened. She would have lost several hundred thousand dollars of earnest money deposit that went hard. She would have had to return $8 million to her investors. Some of these people probably wired her their money two months ago. So how embarrassing is it to go tell people, oh, yeah, here's your money back. Uh, maybe call me on the next one. They're probably not going to call you on the next one, especially if they're not repeat customers and they're, you know, this is their first experience with you. All, all they remember is, oh, that's the lady I wired her money two months ago and she couldn't close. That's all she, they'll remember you as. Yeah. And she's very active in Phoenix. She owns a bunch of other stuff in Phoenix. So maybe it would have damaged her reputation with the broker or something as somebody who couldn't close. So I came in, I saved the day, I lent her $2 million and she closed her deal. And she had to continue raising money post-closing to pay me off. And that's what she did. Yeah. And uh, I did that and I did another one and I did another one. And I was like, you know what? This is actually a business that I can do. It takes advantage of the fact that I have high liquidity and it takes advantage of the fact that I'm a corporate lawyer. So I can do all of this paperwork basically by myself and I can drop everything I'm doing and do it right away. Um. So that's what I mean by a gal gap loan. A variation of it, which I've also done, is uh, I've done loans to people where their uh, payback strategy is based on the sale of an asset. So here's an example in uh, in the Houston area. There's a college town close to Houston. It's called Prairie View. There's a Prairie View A&M University, a historically black college university near here. Uh, somebody I met through a referral uh, owns an apartment building there, student housing. It's basically 100% occupied. Uh, he want, He's going to sell it. So, But he has a need for liquidity for, for whatever reason. It doesn't really matter. 
And so I made him a loan and he's going to pay me back once he sells his property. And he's accepting an offer right now. It should sell in Q1 of next year. So that also qualifies as a gal gap loan because there's a short-term need for liquidity and there's a high chance of, of quick payback. Yeah. I, I mentioned this sort of before we started recording, but I mean, this is, I think this is a brilliant strategy for you. I mean, this is, and for anyone who can do it, right? Obviously, you you worked very hard to get to the point of being able to, you and your wife saved money, you had to have this liquidity and have also, I mean, oh, by the way, being an, uh, an attorney and being able to, um, you know, create your own documents and stuff like that. It, like, all of that took some time, you worked towards it, but but being in the position now to be, you know, sort of that that lender, um, th this is something that, uh, again, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but it, it's it's a very effective strategy for someone in your position that that you know ha to be a part of these deals, get get a part of the the equity, but also get these kind of short term loans and get you know sort of paid on that front right off the bat. <clears throat> I think it's just things that that people that uh people don't necessarily think about that 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 is an opportunity or or an option because there's a need right the the scenario that you described with the the woman in um phoenix that that happens right people get close to closing and they're like oh i, I don't have enough quite enough capital raised i need to get this closed i have a little bit of you know i i'll raise the rest on the back end so um it is it's it's fascinating to me to to be in that position now you said that you use uh you have life insurance policies and i we've talked a bit about you know sort of that infinite banking strategy on this podcast and other episodes and things but um i'm i'm guessing that's a little bit of what you're doing is taking sort of loans against your life insurance policy to then loan out to other people for this gap funding uh, it, it, well, I also have cash on top of the life insurance, but, but yes, uh, my biggest regret is I didn't buy more life insurance when I was younger. Uh, so I'm correcting about my mistake by, uh, maxing out my kids right away. So all my kids have the max policies that anybody will sell them. And then once they turn 16, we're going to do health tests and hopefully get them a better rating. Basically before the kids turn 16, all kids are at one rating standard. You know, there's no differentiation that they typically make among their health ratings. But once you turn 16 or 18, depending on which life insurance company, you can go do a health test and then see if you qualify for a better health rating. And then that'll juice up your return. So my biggest regret is I didn't buy more when I was younger. I had been pitched since, since I was 22 by the smartest financial advisors, by the salesiest financial advisors, by the dumbest financial advisors. I've been pitched this 14 to 17 different times. And I actually loved it each time. Even with the dumbest financial advisors, I didn't dislike it. Uh, with the smartest ones, I liked it a lot because it actually sounded like they knew what they're talking about. Uh, I usually didn't enjoy the most salesiest ones because they were just always pushing you to do it right away. Um, so it was just very clear that, you know, they were poor or they just, uh, just too pushy. Don't, you know, I don't, I don't deal well with that type of tactic. Um, but it, it makes sense. I mean, if you've already talked about it on this podcast, um, there's probably no reason to beat the dead horse, but it makes a ton of sense, uh, in the financial system. It's, it's similar to being a loan guarantor. 
it is something that's phenomenal. It's a rich get richer scheme that most people don't know about. And most people are suspicious of because they don't have someone in their network that knows about it. So I grew up in a small town in America. Um, the richest guy was like a doctor or a guy that owned a factory. They didn't have life insurance policies. They didn't know what investment banking was. Once I went to Cornell even, and I studied economics, uh, my wife studied engineering, uh, nobody told us about any of this stuff. And, and then, you know, my wife ended up working at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. She got an MBA from Harvard. I worked at some of the best law firms in the world, and they don't really teach you any of this personal financial stuff, nor did I even know of the concept of being a loan guarantor. So when I first heard about it, I was like, well, I need to go read the legal documents. You're telling me I can sign on a loan guarantee that's not even a real guarantee. It only is triggered if I commit some sort of fraud or severe noncompliance. I'm like, that's that's like too good to be true uh, situation, right? Oh, and I can sign a bunch of these at the same time. And they actually like it if I sign a bunch of these because it makes me look experienced. I'm like, this, this is phenomenal, Get you know, rich get richer strategy. So, uh, you know, people call it all kinds of gimmicky things, you know, infinite banking, bank on yourself. Uh, we don't call it any of that. But in general, the strategy works. Here's what I've seen, though, from the people that present on the real estate webinars. You know, I don't really want to rain on their parade. Maybe sometimes I'll ask a question or two. But I look at the policies that they recommend, and typically they're not recommending the right policy or they're not recommending the ideal policy, number one. And then number two, they're not actually recommending the right life insurance company either. Um, sometimes they're recommending uh, life insurance policies that are called direct recognition. So when you borrow from the life insurance policy itself, it actually triggers, you know, some life insurance companies, the way it works is it takes that money out of your policy and loans it to you. So now you're borrowing money from yourself without earning anything. That's just called a bad deal, right? Uh, so some people are pushing that. That doesn't make any sense. Some people push the right company, but the wrong product. So they're not doing the ones that maximize the cash value day one, or they're doing it with a, a gimmick or a sleight of hand or a trick, which is fine. It works, but it's not as ideal as just giving you the product that actually maximizes cash value day one. So that's what I see. I see a fundamental lack of expertise. And I think the reason is because life insurance agents are basically like realtors. The test is really easy to pass, no offense. Uh, my wife just passed it. She studied one day and she got a 94 and I told her she overstudied because I think she only needed a 70. I actually told her to not even study a whole section, just go in and just guess. And she's, she said, no, that's not how I do things. So she studied. <laughs> and, then, and then she came back and she was like, yeah, I overstudied. I should have just guessed on that whole section and I still would have passed. And I told that, I said, I, I literally told you that. I think I got an 88. Um, she got a 94. So she clearly studied more than me. <laughs> so there's no barrier to entry. It's like being a realtor. There's no barrier to entry. It's all eat what you kill. So a lot of people just immediately start pushing it onto their friends and family and they might get a couple of sales and they're just pushing what gets them paid the fastest, not the right product. So that's what happens a lot in the industry. Uh, I am a fundamentally different cat for a variety of different reasons. Number one, I own so much of this. Uh, so I always tell any potential client, I'm like, if you find something better than what I'm doing, you got to let me know right away. And we're going to just switch to that because I own so much of this. Um, this is actually one of the largest, if not the largest holding in my portfolio that if there's something better, we need to switch or we need to think about making a switch.
And then number two, uh, I'm active in the industry. I've been uh, licensed for over six years. I work at a registered investment advisor. We have a bunch of guys on my team that also do this type of business. Um, we have all the right contacts. Um, we'll hear about the right stuff. And so, for instance, a lot of the people that go on shows like yours, you know, I'm going to guess, I'll just make an assumption. They usually only pitch, borrow from the life insurance company direct. That is rarely the cheapest way of borrowing. The cheapest way of borrowing is pledging those policies to a bank. So before all these interest rate increases, I borrowed at prime minus 1.25 from a bank in New Jersey. That was significantly cheaper than borrowing from the life insurance company. Plus, it was like a line of credit access. It looks like this. I get a checkbook that I can write a check to myself, clear it, and then I can make prepayments along the way. Whereas when you borrow from a life insurance company directly, it's typically an all or nothing proposition. Typically, they want you to borrow the whole cash value or none of it, and then prepaying the life insurance company is, is annoying. By doing it through a bank, you're actually able to control your flows in and out extremely well. That's why I mentioned earlier, I rarely have cash. I, I basically have no reason to keep cash in my bank. So what I've done is, if you really think about it logically, which most people are not able to, if I don't keep any cash, what that means is that cash drag that I would have on my overall portfolio is completely eliminated. It's either in my life insurance policies earning around five to whatever, seven or eight all the time or it's borrowed out and earning more than that because i'm investing it in a gap loan or something else right so a lot of people don't really understand that they're just they, they really don't but what that means is i've eliminated the cash drag on my entire portfolio by having a life insurance policy instead that's fascinating i i've never heard i've never heard about that i've never heard about it yeah most people most people don't think about it that way and then even after i explain it they don't really comprehend it and then i just ask them just just go look at how much your average cash balance is if you could just step that up and now you're not earning you know very low amount now you're earning whatever you're earning on life insurance policy you just eliminated all of the cash grab that is huge for a portfolio yeah yeah that's well even just the <clears throat> pledging the insurance again, you know, to a bank and borrowing it that way. I've, I've never heard anyone describe, we're, we're going to have to talk about this all after. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Off, and off this, is, and this, this, is the, this is the fundamental problem with rich get richer schemes. Uh, even if you do become rich, but you don't come from the right background and you don't know a guy that did it, you will not believe it and you won't do it. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of what I am to a lot of people. I just become their wealth mentor. I'm like a genuinely rich person. That's real. And I'm willing to share the information and I'll show it to you. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm stupid. Although if you ask my wife on certain days, she says I'm straight up dumb. Uh, but in general, I'm smarter than most people. And so um, everything that I'm doing makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I mean, like if, <laughs> if some, if some guy explained this to me, if some guy that I trusted, like if just a guy that I went to law school with just told me, yeah, this is great. You should do it. I would have done it way earlier. But I didn't, you know, I just kept Googling it. And everybody said, you know, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman says, pay off all your debt and uh, don't, you know, buy term insurance and invest the difference, which no, nobody can. They buy term and then they spend the difference. Um, you know, that's what the conventional wisdom is. But but you're not in the right club and, and you don't know. Yeah, it, it, that's it. You just you just don't know. And it, it's it is a fascinating um, it. it, it you're right about sort of the salesy nature of it. I, I feel like it's always someone has to put a fancy name on it. it you know, it's the infinite banking, the, the 
bank on yourself. You're right. There's like all these different things. People create their own sort of brand out of it. But but the, fundamentally, the strategy is is good. And you, I almost think like sometimes that it turns people off by creating this name for it that sounds you know make it sounds sound too good to be true or something. It, it's just it's a it's a a weird uh, a weird way that it's approached. I think. Well, it's just like being a realtor. It's it's such a it's a it's a commission based job. Eat what you kill. Yeah. So yeah. sales is extremely important. And then yeah. um, you know, a lot of the shops they teach the Sandler methodology of sales. I think Sandler is is basically like being a used car salesman. They're trying to find your pain point and then talk about that. And then it's it's an emotional response. You know, most sales is financial sales is emotional, which I don't get at all. Like literally, I, I I don't understand that. You know, maybe I'm too robotic in nature, but a emotional sale to me on a financial product will never work. Right for me, it's yeah. literally, okay, is it twelve or twelve point oh one? If it's twelve, I'll take it. If it's twelve oh one, buy. Right. It would like the emotional aspect doesn't do anything, right. but it apparently does for a lot of people. There's pain points, blah 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 blah. blah. It doesn't matter. Long story short is uh, it works. Uh, trust me, I guess. Uh, you barely know me, but yeah, I'm telling you, trust me. Uh, number two, uh, even the people in the club, if they don't even know about borrowing from the bank, they're not really in the club. They just know the bare minimum. Right. There's all kinds of interesting things that somebody can do to optimize this strategy. Yeah, yeah. I, and I've done all of them. I've I, tried almost every single thing. I'm, I'm sure this is this could be a <laughs> hours and hours long podcast topic. I, I, it really is fascinating, but it's, um, I've never heard anyone describe some some of what you're saying now. So that that's actually, I, I'm like even more even more interested because I I have I have these policies, but they weren't. It was never sold to me as a way to use as as an investment vehicle. It was sold to me as a way to have income after retirement from this this whole life insurance policy, which isn't necessarily a bad thing it was but it was it was definitely sold as a as a you know retire money in retirement sort of approach so yeah it's sold as a variety <laughs> of different things so uh, here here are my red flags here, here are the here are the advisors i really dislike the ones that talk about the viability of social security as like their big pitch uh those people are you know i'm gonna make one big macro call and uh I, i'd be happy to be proven wrong the people that uh genuinely talk about social security collapsing and it not being there for most people they're not necessarily wrong um i mean i'm sure social security will get worse and it might become means tested where if your income is above a certain level they'll give you less but to talk about that collapsing as a scheme is just makes no sense americans are terrible savers uh we would literally have riots in the streets and revolution uh, in the streets for something like that to happen that that's not even that doesn't even make sense when you think about it logically um so that's a big red flag um the people that that are overly emotional about it that that's also kind of a red flag they're just trying to sell it to you faster and they must have gone through the used car salesman sandler training so when i went through that training i basically decided to delete all of it after i went through it. and i said this has got to be the worst stupidest thing i've ever freaking heard I was like, I'm never going to do this type of sale. Yeah. And this is yeah. why I'm a very unsuccessful used car salesman. <laughs> well, again, I, I, I'm with you. I don't, that's not the way I want. I want to, I want to be educated on products and, and be able to make a smart, especially financial products, products. You just, I want to be able to 
know what, how it works and what, you know, what am I, what am I getting? What are the, the actual numbers behind it? Like not, not all of that, you know, it is, it is hard for people to remove the emotion, but I think it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's the place where you really do need to remove emotion and be really completely objective to accomplish your financial goals. Let, let's make a real estate analogy. It's like, you just love the house because the kitchen's great. So you're going to overpay. Come on. Are you a, are you a real investor or not? Yeah, you can't do that as an investor. People do it as as their own home all the time. But yeah, you can't can't do that as an investor. It can't be, oh, I love this, <laughs> I love the way this is painted, or this is a, you know, th these are all, uh, you know, changeable things. So, oh well, <laughs> you and I will need to talk about this more. But yeah, we will. Just, no, this is great. How, this hopefully, is yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully, this educates the crowd a little bit more. Yeah. I, I rarely talk on these things as like a financial guy or a life insurance guy sometimes we touch around around it but it's it typically depends on the host like you already own these policies so you already know about them so you're interested that's why other people have no idea what they're, what they're what i'm talking about so they just move on they don't yeah. really care yeah no but uh, yeah i think it's definitely something that, that needs to be you know kind of more there needs to be more education around it um but even let me let me switch gears and just so i don't keep you all day but <clears throat> i want to get to ask you the questions um that i ask each guest and the first one relating to the name of the sh uh, show being know your why what is your why what, what kind of drives you towards success you have a, a very um i think unique uh background and 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 sort of path to where you've gotten so it, it's really very interesting to me yeah so for <laughs> me there's there's a couple of personal things so for me uh i grew up as a immigrant so i came to the united states when i was six and a half i didn't speak any english i had to go through esl um moving from one system to another you know one country system to another country system and then as the ethnic minority is is a turbulent cataclysmic type of experience right that takes time to adjust my wife has the same background but what that also means is that we were both born in china during the one child policy so I am an only child and my wife is also an only child. So that is one of the reasons that we have five children. Uh, I don't know if we really needed to have all five. Uh, I would have been happy <laughs> with like two or three. Five is a little bit too many children, but that's why we have more than two children, right? And for me, um, you know, maybe I'm too old school, old world, but I like to think of things as dynastic. When I went to Cornell, I saw, you know, Moral Hall or whatever hall. These are families that have gone to Cornell or have given millions and millions of dollars to Cornell for generations, right? So I am, because, you know, I'm an immigrant, came here with nothing. I am basically the progenitor or the patriarch and the matriarch that has to create this for my family. Nothing would make me more proud than, you know, four generations of my my kids and descendants. They all go to Cornell and that's our legacy. And then they all become lawyers and real estate investors and gap lenders and loan signers and life insurance agents. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I, I love it. I, I think and just just people listening to that right there, you sort of just described, you know, kind of what what was difficult about your, your, you know, early life. <clears throat> Let's, I just want to remind everybody, you graduated from college at 19. So uh, it, it, no excuses, right? You, you and your wife have uh, taken that and, and um, made quite a successful life. And now you have five kids to, to, you know, share that with and, and um, create legacy. So 
um, really, really amazing um, and, and inspirational. Um, Ethan, this this will be, <laughs> you, you can't use the kids, but this one is, okay. next question is, what's uh, what's something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge, special skill, a hobby, um, something just to let people know you a little better? Yeah, so I have no skills at all. <laughs> uh, you can ask my wife. Uh, she says, so I don't know where anything is in this house. So um, I, I read this study about divorce and why it's traumatic. Uh, I don't know why that popped up one day. I, I have no interest in divorce. Divorce is a concept that I understand happens, but it's not relevant to my life. I met my wife when I was 16 and there's no way I'm letting her go. So um, it, it, it's, it's going to be impossible for us to separate. But um, I read this study and one of the traumatic things that happens after divorce is people forget a bunch of stuff because they use the other partner as their external storage. And I was like, that's exactly what I do with my wife. I don't know where my clothes are. I don't know where we keep the screwdriver. I don't know where we keep the light bulb. Because I put all of that as external storage in her hard drive. Because we kind of have our spheres of influence where I, I'm manageable for my silo and she's her silo. So her silo, she does, her, you know, she's she's very similar personality to me. Very good memory, replies right away to things, uh, is on top of her stuff. So I can rely on her to know all that stuff. So like I email my wife constantly, like, where's the toothbrush? And she's like you you live here what are you talking about <laughs> how do you not know where that is and that and that's the reason so that's, yes so there are certain so you will ask me you know i might appear to be extremely smart and knowledgeable but if you ask me a narrow set of questions that's related to something that i've used my wife as external storage i will be extremely unimpressive so please don't ask me where the light bulbs are or where the screwdriver is in my home i don't amazing. know and i don't care and i not i'm not going to know Oh, that's amazing. We have, I, I don't know if this is just a wife thing, but we have basically that same thing, you know, like my wife, I mean, I, my background is in construction. Like I have a garage full of tools and my wife knows where they all are. Right. But, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't like, I'm like, oh, I can't find the hammer again or whatever. And she's like, you left it, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, how do you know where I left it? Cause it's not where it was supposed to be. And she just, she knows that stuff, but that's fascinating. I, I've never heard that. You know, and I'll of, give you the converse. Cause I mean, I was making fun of myself. I'll give you the converse of my wife. She didn't know what bank we use. So yeah. I'm like, if I drop dead, I have a spreadsheet of all the stuff. She's like, where do I go get cash and stuff? I'm like the following places, you know, the one that you always drive. She's like, she didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's very you, much a team. When you're when you're with your partner for a long time and you do use them ex external storage, you really just delete it from your own file because you're just like, well, I just rely on that storage. Yeah, no, I, it, it, it's I've never heard it described that way, but it, you're 100 percent right. I, like it, as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, yeah, there's so many things I would and I I joke about it. Like I was like, uh, you know, oh, if you ever left me, I won't I don't know what I would do. But that's literally true. I <laughs> I literally, there'd be so many things. Yeah, that for people like, that have been together a long time, that's literally true. I, I read this story. So the other thing about me is um, the only kind of hobby I have is I enjoy watching football games. And then um, Yahoo Sports is really great, uh, especially if you don't read the comments. If you read the comments, it's horrible. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe these people are alive. And I can't believe the things that are coming out of their mouths. But if you just read Yahoo Sports, it's a really good synopsis. So I read this story about Lincoln Riley. So he used to be the head coach at Oklahoma. He's a superstar he's now the coach at usc i remember uh, you know, there was like a linked interview to his wife uh, and you know she's she's pretty and she's nice and i think they've been together since college this guy has been using her as external storage just like the way i've been using my wife so he doesn't know his address 
So he's been giving people the wrong address to his house. Uh, so he's like the the extreme version where he only cares about football. So he doesn't know anything else. He doesn't know his own address and he doesn't know the garage code to get into the door. Yeah. And he calls his wife. That's amazing. He's That's like, amazing. what's the garage code? You know? It's... <laughs> It's it's so true. Like how I mean, it's just it's funny. I, I like I can't I'm a, I can't wait to like relay this story to my wife too. Like this just it's just very funny. Um, <laughs> amazing, uh, Ethan. When people hear this and they want to reach out to you, uh, I guess for <laughs> for whatever reason, um, so many different skill sets. What what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, my email address ethangao at gmail dot com. E T H A N G A O at gmail dot com. I reply really fast, um, even if it's, you know, something mundane or uh, something like that. So if you haven't heard back from me in 24 hours, just ping me again. Yeah. And I can uh, say from personal experience, you are very responsive. So so I'll say thank you for that. Um, final question for you, Ethan. What is a piece of advice that you would give to someone um, getting started? And I mean, you can kind of take this whatever direction you want, whether that's getting started in real estate or or just getting started in trying to, you know, sort of establish some sort of financial literacy in their life. Yeah, I would say real estate, Bigger Pockets is a phenomenal website. Um, you could just listen to the podcasts they do. They're all pretty good. After a while, you heard one, you heard them all. Um, but like podcasts, like the one Jason does, uh, you know, interviews like this, you know, listen to like 10 or 12 you know, pick, pick different type archetypes to listen to. Don't, don't listen for the one with, uh, you know, financial advisors all the time, or don't listen to the one with guys that uh, just sign on loans all the time, you know, listen to a broad range and, and you'll get most of the archetypes. Uh, there's so much information on the internet these days. Uh, you know, everything on the internet is true. It's true. Uh, so obviously that, and then also, uh, don't be afraid to seek out mentors. One of the mistakes I made early was uh, because I had such a strong academic pedigree and so much success in my life, uh, I would just assume I'm smarter than everybody, which is fine. You can be smarter than everybody, but you can still learn from other people, yeah. especially those with more wisdom. Uh, wisdom is not necessarily correlated with pure intellectual horsepower. Yeah, yeah, it it. it wisdom comes from experience right there's there's you know you need to have the intelligence to process the experiences and and use them to your advantage but yeah it's, it's combining education you know experience and wisdom and, and all of that together is, is what's going to get you ahead so that that's that's really great um ethan this has been awesome uh i, I i'm honestly not <laughs> i think we covered a couple of different topics but but important topics important things for people to to understand um you know both both on the you know sort of syndication side but also just you know getting into that life insurance stuff it was was great uh so thank you so much thank you for coming on the show today taking the time out to to share with us yeah thank you and folks listening to this um i'm sure you're gonna love this episode really a lot of value there please um like rate and review so we can get more guests like ethan um really really appreciate having you thank you I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.